Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 15, page 852 in a Blue Pew Bible. If you don't have one, I encourage you to follow along. Um, again, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home uh, with you. But um, praise God for just the worship this morning, for our, all that God is doing in and through His church. I mean, Easter, spring is kind of the most busy time from a ministry calendar standpoint for most churches, certainly is for us. Um, and so we just want to give Him all the glory for all he has done, all he is doing, will continue to do uh, as we open up his word together this morning. And we're going to come to a passage uh, in the Gospel of Mark that the whole book has been pointing to, kind of the climax of the Gospel of Mark we're going to see this morning. Ever since chapter 1, verse 1, as we read it, I think you will kind of feel like this is it, like this is what everything was kind of pointing to. It's what it's led to. If, you, uh, if you're a big movie fan or you read a lot of novels, you, gotta, you know that scene or that chapter where as you're in it, you're like, this is, this is it. Like, this is happening. This is really what um, it's all going to come to a head. And it's kind of exciting in the Gospel of Mark, one we've been in a long time, that we're here. And um, all that to say is that we, we arrive at the cross, the cross where Jesus will be crucified. And, and I don't think it's an overstatement to say that, uh, that no word, no single word, gets to the core of Christian belief and theology more than the word cross. So if you and I were to sit down for coffee this week, and, and I were to just ask you, like, you know, t- tell me what you think about the cross. And uh, don't worry, that's not really a question I ask. I'm asking a theology questions. So if you get an email, like, I want to get coffee, don't be like, oh, no. Uh, but hypothetically speaking, if we were sitting over a cup of coffee and I said, just tell me what you think about the cross, I'm pretty sure, based upon your answer, I could tell you well, what you think about God, what you think about grace, um, sin, faith, salvation, uh, love, your, your purpose in life, what you think about your past, what you think about your future. I, I'm pretty sure I could tell you just on what you tell me about what you think about the cross all of those things. It all gets exposed in our view of the cross. And throughout 2,000 years of church history, there's no symbol that symbolizes so much as the cross. And yet, in many ways, in our kind of Western culture, uh, there's almost a symbol that's not as familiar as the cross. It is the most familiar symbol that we see day in and day out because it's everywhere. It's on jewelry. You're watching the Yankees in the last week. You see a lot of guys with chains hanging out of their uniform, and there's a cross. You're driving, and you see a cross hanging from rearview mirrors. We see them in our churches, I hope. We see them in our homes. And, and so it's so familiar. Nobody really gets shocked when they see a cross. But, but at the same time, it also is unbelievably kind of mysterious and sacred and has all this depth attached to it. And, and, and let me just share with you how this was illustrated for me just this past week. Um, so Monday morning, um, I spent the morning studying for this passage and for this sermon. It was kind of a little bit different for me. Normally Wednesday is my kind of wall-to-wall study sermon day, uh, but the last week was just going to be a little bit different. We had some family in town, and so I wanted to kind of get ahead of it in case the week got away from me. So Monday morning, a little bit different. I'm studying the passage, studying the cross, and I, like, I geek out in my study, all right? So if you saw me in my office, I'm like, I'm surrounded by book, book, book. I got my computer. I got all these tabs open. I'm reading scripture. I'm trying to read as, as far across church history as I can. I'm not just modern um, commentaries and scholars, but I'm trying to go past centuries, 
early church, I mean, totally, it's like my favorite day of the week as like a t- closet introvert, okay? And, um, and so I'm reading even the stance of, of people, how they view the cross that I don't really agree with. I'm trying to understand where are they coming from and, and why do I disagree and going back to scripture. And it was just a few hours, Monday morning, of cross theology and what it means and what its implications are. But here's what happened. I read so much and took so many notes that I actually got to the point where my mind was clouded on what the cross means, where I was staring at it so much, and I began to get a little anxious, because now I'm thinking, okay, well, how am I going to talk about all this on Sunday? Because I want to bring something new. I want to really get grip people on the cross, and how can I do that? Something almost fresh. But there's so much here what should I say? How can I fit it in? And that, So that's the way I'm kind of starting my week. And so um, I closed the books because I have to go pick up my son, four-year-old son, Caden, from preschool over uh, around lunchtime over at Bethlehem Lutheran right down the road. Awesome preschool if anyone's looking into it. Um, and my head in the two-minute drive is in this kind of fog. And I kind of show up and I get to his classroom and and, and, and I pick him up, and my first question to Caden is usually like, hey, tell me something you did today. What was something you did today? And, and nine times out of ten, it's what they did in gym class or what they served for a snack. All right? <laughs> Both of those things are very important in the Syrerton family, okay? Generally in that order. And I'm not kidding. We're walking towards the stairs, about to head up, and Caden just says, Jesus was nailed to a cross, and died for our sins. They began going through the Easter story at preschool last Monday. And I looked at him and could not speak. And I'm not really an emotional person, but I just, you know, you just kind of feel it on your throat all of a sudden. And you just don't really have a word. Like I almost in the moment kind of broke down. So I said nothing. I just like, he said that. I just said nothing back to him. And I think he thought it was a little strange. I didn't respond. And so as we're going up the stairs, he just looks at me and goes, did you know that? And um, at that moment, I almost like exploded, but you know, like there's people around, I'm getting self-conscious, I managed to keep my cool, I just go, yeah, but I knew that, that's awesome, that's awesome. (laughs) And it just hit me like a Mack truck when I got back to my office. I spent my entire morning from scholars going back centuries about the cross, and it was out of the mouth of a four-year-old that God used to clear the fog. And the Holy Spirit just firmly, lovingly reminding me in that moment, preacher, don't worry about something new. Preach the word. It's been enough for 2,000 years. I'll be all right. Amen. So we're going to dig into the cross this morning. But as we go into it, church, just know Jesus was nailed to a cross and died for our sins. Amen? Amen. All right. We're going to read this passage all um, at once. It's going to be verse 21 to verse 41 of Mark 15. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. 
And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and the younger of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. All right, I want to walk through this passage, and as we go, I'm going to provide five words, five words that capture why the cross is the center of it all. So coming off last week, Jesus was condemned to death by Pontius Pilate, uh, not because Pilate thought he was guilty, but because he wanted to avoid a riot so he, and keep his job, and so he, he sent him to be crucified, and from there, Jesus was brutally beaten while being mocked and being shamed, and from there, they go to a place where he'll be crucified. Criminals often had to carry their own cross, and a cross weighed about 100 pounds, um, but Jesus was so badly beaten that he couldn't do it. And so uh, the soldiers are there, and he can't get the cross to carry it. And so they, they, they get a man named Simon, who's just passing by. And they get Simon to carry his cross. And um, in Luke's account, it says that they seized Simon. Okay, this is wrong place, wrong time for Simon. Not a volunteer job. And Mark adds this kind of random detail, which is very unmark-like. He says, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus. And some commentators think the only reason Mark of all people would include that detail is if Alexander and Rufus were somehow known throughout the early church and Mark's original hearers who he's writing to would know who they are. And so we don't know that, but it is just interesting to think that perhaps this man, Simon, who was wrong place, wrong time, had two young children looking on as he did it. And were so moved by this event and what it led to that they end up trusting in Christ as their Savior, planting churches, and becoming well-known throughout the early church. And we don't know that, but it's interesting to think about because what we do know is that God is always working in a thousand ways in every single moment, even the most tragic ones, in ways we might never know. He's working. 
And so they go out to Golgotha, and Golgotha is outside the city walls. It's alongside a major public highway in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was known for their highway system, really kind of revolutionized that, connecting different cities within the empire. And the reason was simple why they would go do the crucifixion here, because Romans wanted it to be seen. They wanted the execution of their criminals to be seen because now it's a public display as a warning to anyone else who would dare rebel against the Roman Empire. Look what will happen to you. And so this is the historical backdrop to the most significant moment in the history of the world, which brings us to the first word that captures the supremacy of the cross, fulfillment. The cross is fulfillment. These 20 verses we just read, they are loaded with direct fulfillments of Old Testament, Old Testament prophecies, and Mark is just rattling them off. Did, did you notice while I was reading, every single sentence from verse 21 to 29 starts with the word and. And they compelled the passerby, and they brought him, and they offered him, and they crucified him, and it was the third hour, and the inscription, and with them, and those who passed by. Mark is just piling on. So students in the room, next time you hand in a paper to your English teacher and she gives you a red mark and says, you cannot start a sentence with and, you just tell them to take it up with the Holy Spirit, all right? <laughs> so it's not me, you, you got to deal with him. But it's no less than just um, eight fulfillments in these verses, half of which come from Psalm 22, others come from Amos chapter 8, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53. And Mark, who's writing it, you can almost see it in his mind being like, check, check, check. All these promises, all these fulfillments. To the point where the entire passage just proclaims that this moment of Jesus hanging on a cross did not take the Father by surprise. It's not plan B. It's not the emergency break of the Bible. If things have gone off the rails, we got to do something quick. But rather, this was always the course of action. This is the path where history was always headed. This is the moment that Jesus spoke of when he first came onto the scene in his public ministry and his first words in the Gospel of Mark were what? The time is fulfilled. What time? The time of God divinely acting upon and making good on all of his promises that he has ever put forward. Jesus on the cross being crucified was what God meant all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve sinned and got kicked out of the garden and, and God then cursed the serpent. And what did he say to the serpent? The first reference to a Messiah in the Bible he said, I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that moment is now. The serpent bruising the heel of Eve's offspring, the, the offspring of Eve bruising the head of um, the serpent's offspring. In this moment, both happening at the cross, fulfillment of Genesis 3. And it's crazy to think that all of history pointed to like this moment and they're there so let me put it this way um this thursday um our very own creative director aj graves lord willing got a few days left but lord willing will be standing right around here saying his vows to melissa 
And a wedding ceremony, ceremony is always this kind of eerie moment for couples because it's a day where this like, ref, a lot of reflection happens, where all the twists and turns of life have kind of lined up to the point where they met each other where they did, which was in the narthex, by the way, when they did, how they did, and then they got into a relationship and they got engaged and now they're getting married. Like, what are the chances of that? And AJ and Melissa can both look back on their life like we all can and remember all the disappointments, all the successes, all the good days and the bad, all the happiness and all the sorrow, and yet see all of it playing a role in them meeting together, getting to this moment. And so in a kind of strange way, they are thankful, even grateful for the disappointments and the bad times, not because they enjoyed them in the moment, but because even those played a part in allowing them and their paths to cross when they did. And if that's true just for a simple marriage, which won't last for eternity and shouldn't even be the most important thing in their lives right now, so if you missed the sermon on Mark last summer in Mark 10 on marriage, I'm sorry to break that to you now. That felt a little cold. But premarital counseling is me telling couples that the most important thing about marriage is to realize marriage is not the most important thing. And that's actually good news because it's entirely possible to, in Christ, in a relationship with Christ, to be totally fulfilled in every way and not married. All right, I don't have time to do more. Go listen to the sermon last summer, and then I don't want to get people mad at me twice. I did it once already. But it's reflection. It's reflection happening in a wedding ceremony, and that is just a small picture of what it's like to see all of history and all of its disappointments and successes leading to the moment of the cross. It's fulfillment fulfillment of God's original plan to redeem and restore creation through the death of his son. And fulfillment reminds us that God is never late. And he's never removed from things. And he's not lose track of time. And he doesn't get behind schedule. And he doesn't forget that God is faithful to fulfill every promise and every need in Christ. So just a practical application here. Um, when we are in a spot in life where we are struggling to understand God's timing. Anyone? Of just struggling to understand like God's timing. If you think about frustrations in life, a lot of it is, um, God, why is this happening now? It's not supposed to happen yet. Or on the flip side, God, why isn't this happening yet? It's supposed to happen now. And go down the line of why we're kind of struggling with these things. And that happens and it's real and it's deep. And the Bible is just telling us in those moments, look to the cross. Because he is faithful. And what our souls needed most happened at just the right time. And if we can trust him with our eternal souls, we can trust him with everything else. So fulfillment First word. Second word, exposure. The cross is exposure. Um, so the moments leading up to Jesus' death on the cross um, were filled, if you, while we were reading it, they were filled with ridicule. They were filled with mockery, and it exposes the fallen nature of sin. There's a phrase 
kind of a universal phrase we all learned as kids. I'll start it, you finish it, okay? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Something children say to one another to try and act like, you can't hurt my feelings. But every kid who has ever said that also knows they're saying that because deep down, their feelings are hurt. And it's true. It's the reason why people don't say that once they're not kids anymore. Because the emotional wounds from mean words always cut deeper than physical wounds from sharp swords. You see, physical wounds heal. Emotional wounds often do not. And they stick in our minds. And I bet you, even for all the kids in the room and teens, if, if I had every single adult come up here, to a man, to a woman, I bet you every single person could vividly remember at least one moment from childhood where something was said to them that cut so deeply it rocked their world. And did you notice how universal the mocking was in this passage? It was everyone. You had Roman soldiers who were mocking him last week as they beat him senseless, now mockingly right, king of the Jews, and put it on the inscription above his head. You had those passing by on the public highway, passing by Golgotha, both Jew and Gentile, I'm sure, and they're cut wind, they know what's going on, and they go, oh, the guy who's going to rebuild the temple in three days, right? Well, why don't you save yourself? Why don't you just come down from the cross? The chief priest, the highly educated, proper chief priest, couldn't even stay away from this scene. They find their way there, and they are just eating this up. And they go, yeah, uh, may, may the Christ come down that we might believe. And even those crucified with him are mocking him as they are being crucified. And we know at some point, one of them will have a dramatic change of heart. But at least initially... They're joining in on the fun. Because dying on a cross was the most horrifying, shame-filled way you could go out in the first century. And this universal mocking makes it clear. While um, God was sovereign over all the events leading up to the cross we just talked about, it was man's sin that was responsible. It was the sin of mankind that made the cross necessary. And the cross exposes the ugliness of sin that put him there. We just sang it this morning. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And it is laid bare for all to see. There is no sin left unexposed. Just like beams of sunlight and how they expose all dust in a room, so the beams of the cross exposes all sin in the world. And sin is universal. It's not just those who came before. It's not just the sin of those looking on. But all sin, my sin, your sin. And this is sobering to think about. But in God's eyes, my sin is as ugly and rebellious as those who mocked Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. 
And I, I'm pretty good at dressing my sin up, trying to make it look good, throw some makeup on it, throw some gel in its hair, put some ripped designer jeans on it. But at the end of the day, it's still sin. And the cross exposes it, as well as the sin of self-sufficiency, of thinking, I can do this myself. Jesus is a great example, sure, but he's, I don't really need a savior. I'm, I'm, I'm living life like a way I should be. I do you know, some things here and there, but I'm, I'm kind of on the straight and narrow. I'm good enough. Isn't that the kind of works-based salvation that Jesus was taunted with? Hey, just come down from the cross. Come on, just come on down. Just do it. Be a good person. Do good things. You'll be fine. Let's see it. Come down. That's a dead end. No matter what we tell ourselves, our good will never be good enough. So the cross exposes this. It's exposure. Nothing will be left unseen. Third, the cross is judgment cross is judgment. And in verse 33, we see one of the most overlooked aspects of the crucifixion, that at the sixth hour, which was midday, they count the hours from sunrise, so the the third hour from sunrise was mid-morning, 9 a.m., the sixth hour from sunrise was midday, ninth hour, mid-afternoon. So from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from 12 to 3, when Jesus died, darkness came over the entire land. This was not an eclipse because Passover was always held at the time of a full moon. So just think about this. What would happen if at noon today in our social media saturated world, if everything went dark, we would melt down, like freak out, like this is it, it's over. And this was an act of God. And it was, again, a fulfillment of an age-old promise. Amos chapter 8, verse 9. And in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. Darkness in the Bible is often associated with lament and judgment. And it's a symbol for us that all of creation was impacted by the fall, right? Sin didn't just drive individual people away from God. The whole cosmos was fractured. And the whole cosmos is in need of restoration. It's why Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation is groaning together like the pains of childbirth. And so at high noon, the day Jesus died, the sky went black. Do you remember the ten plagues in Egypt? Moses going in by God's power and stating these plagues. The tenth and final one was the death of the firstborn of every family in Egypt. And this was the plague that eventually Pharaoh said, okay, get out of here, and God's people were set free. Jewish families were only saved if they sacrificed a lamb and put its blood on their doorposts so God would pass over their homes. The celebration of the Passover, the festival that Jesus is in Jerusalem for this very week. Here's my question. Do you remember what the ninth plague was? Darkness over all the land. And now, once again, Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation, the true and better Passover lamb, will be sacrificed after darkness covers the land to set God's people free. And the most gut-wrenching words in the Bible 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's words from David in Psalm 22, verse 1. And it's the, only, the, the second and only time in the entire Gospel of Mark that Mark quotes Hebrew language, making sure his readers know, this is Jesus quoting Psalm 22, that Jesus took on the judgment that was owed to sinners. And this is the whole scandal of the cross. This is almost the whole mysterious aspect of it all, that in this moment, the Father turned his face away from his eternal Son, And the sin of all mankind was put on to Jesus. The the best word I've kind of heard that kind of uh, of this idea of sin entering into Jesus is that the sin of the world, past, present, future, coalesces. It coalesces into Jesus on the cross. And because of this, God turns his face away. And in this way, the cross is the necessary judgment of God upon sin. And Jesus is the substitute for sinners. And it's why Jesus, in his own prediction of his death and resurrection, did it three times in the Gospel of Mark. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed. That word must is a really important word. He didn't say, I might, I could. He doesn't even say, I will. He says, I must suffer and be killed. And you know why? Because if you take away the cross, you take away salvation. But if you dig into the doctrine of the cross, if you went this afternoon and you want to geek out like I did and just get the books around you and the tabs open and you want to start looking into it, you will find that many people have a lot of issues with this view, what theologians would call substitutionary atonement. That it was necessary for God to pour out judgment onto his son. That his death was even foreordained. So there's all kinds of modern voices that say, this makes God to look like this kind of bloodthirsty dictator, and I don't really like a God like that. A God that can't forgive without violence. And, and that the father's this kind of cosmic child abuser. And so, and so there's a way that people have, and they're getting a lot of people to come along with them, to view the cross in such a way where God was not really responsible for it. And so the only place they can really go and try and be somewhat tied to Scripture is to say, well, God foreknew the cross, you see, but he did not foreordain it. So to them, that's better. God knew it was going to happen because it was inevitable, but he did not will it in any way. But if you think about it, that really doesn't solve the problem. Because then you have to say, well, God knew it was going to happen, but did nothing to change it or could do nothing to change it. And once you find yourself saying, God can't do something, you strip God of his godness. And so to be honest with Scripture, we have to hold this tension together. That the sin of mankind is responsible for Jesus going to the cross. And the cross was necessary for God to pour out righteous judgment onto sin Because as the author of Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. You see, forgiveness always costs something. There's no such thing as non-costly forgiveness. If somebody wrongs you and they sin against you, whether or not they apologize to you, if you decide, I'm going to forgive this person, you know what you're not saying? You're not saying, don't worry about it, no big deal. Just forget about it, no big deal. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is saying, I absorb your sin, and I will take the payment for it, and you will be forgiven. I'll take the cost and forgive. 
That's why it's so hard when somebody forg- when sins against you to actually forgive them. It's so hard because there's no such thing as non-costly forgiveness. And that's why it's so amazing that God, in Jesus Christ, forgives sinners. Not saying, don't worry about it, sin, no big deal. But saying, I'm going to take the sin, the penalty of the sin on myself. Which leads us to the fourth word. We're going to be quicker here with these last two because we're going to dig deeper into them in the coming weeks. Fourth is revelation. The cross is revelation. I couldn't decide between that and restoration, so let's go a two-for-one special. All right? An observation of this passage is that before Jesus dies, it's all mockery. But once he takes his last breath, you will see across all four Gospels, there is not a single word of ridicule after he takes his last breath. Because the moment Jesus stops breathing, the powers of this world are broken. And the most significant sign of that was the temple, the curtain in the temple, tearing in two from top to bottom. The curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, which is the place where the high priest would go in once a year. He could only go in once a year and make the annual sacrifice. And the moment Jesus' heart stops beating, the final sacrifice was made. The barrier was removed, and the access to the Father now goes through the Son. And this is powerfully demonstrated when the Roman centurion facing Jesus on the cross, who um, earlier was either mocking him or just standing by while everybody else was mocking him, now just says, truly, this man was the Son of God. What changed The power of the cross was revealed to him by God's grace that this man is who he said he was. And it's the revelation that one of the robbers also had when eventually they said, remember me when you come into my kingdom after he was mocking him. And so the only way for any of us to see the cross in all of its glory and not just in its shameful horror is for it to be revealed to us. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way, the kingdom of God is received, not achieved. And we can only receive that which is revealed to us. The revelation that Jesus is God and it was out of God's great love for us that he sent his own son. That, that's not just shameful and horror and sin, it's God's love that restores and makes us whole. And this is what Mark has been getting at the whole gospel. He started the gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the very confession the centurion gives at the end. You cannot love God and experience healing without the cross. That's why Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're all going to boast in something. Let it be the cross. Finally, quickly, the cross is inclusive. Final word, inclusive. So Mark writes two sentences that really stick out like a sore thumb in this story. After the confession of the centurion, he then introduces new characters for the first time in the gospel. So if you're going to write a biography, you're going to write a novel, you know what's not a good idea? Introduce characters in the final chapter. Three women that were not named up until this point. And yet, strangely, that in lies the very point. Mark mentions that from a distance, some of Jesus' followers were there. But you know who it wasn't? It wasn't the apostles. They fled. They're gone. They're hiding. They're scared. 
But in the vicinity, you have three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And then Mark comments, oh, by the way, they've been with him for a while now. As have many other women that followed Jesus, too. Why now? What does this add to the story? It's like a throwaway detail, except it's not. It's a vivid illustration that the cross is inclusive. Because Jesus on the cross, in what he accomplishes, now includes everyone that everybody else casts out. Many of you know this, and we'll talk about it more in the coming weeks, but um, when it came to culture-shaping movements and influence, women in the ancient empire, largely absent. Not trusted, discounted, not reliable. You would never include them in a story if you're trying to make it up. And Mark illustrates the upside-down, kingdom-changing, creation-altering reality of the cross by highlighting the fact that it's the women who are the faithful, resilient, and it's the women who are included in the promise of the cross. So you had a Roman centurion, and you had three women, and these are the groups that get spotlighted in Mark's gospel. The cross is inclusive, and it's a window into the fact that Christ And the kingdom of God will be made available for all who believe. Not one race, not one people group, not one gender. He came for all who would believe. Five words. Fulfillment, exposure, judgment, revelation, inclusive. Five words that capture the supremacy of the cross in Mark 15. And to sum it all up. In the words of a four-year-old prophet, I know. (laughs) Jesus was nailed to a cross and died for our sins. Did you know that? Let's pray. 